the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Abraham predates the law. Abraham even believed God before he was circumcised by about 15 years. So Paul's reasoning here is you can't just lay claim as a Jew that, oh, well, because you're a Jew and you have the law and you're circumcised, that you have a step up and an easier entry into heaven. Because he says Abraham believed God, exercised faith. He says faith is the key here. Abraham exercised faith before there was a law. And Abraham exercised faith before he was circumcised. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Romans. You cannot earn your salvation. God has revealed himself to man in many ways throughout history. And in return, man has tried to find ways to appease him and draw himself closer. It never works. God offered the law as a means of caring for, providing, and protecting his children. But instead, men took it and tried to use it as a means of acquiring God's salvation and favor. As Pastor Gary reminds us in today's message, the only way to attain salvation and favor is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and trusting him to provide. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Romans, chapter 4, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Here in Romans chapter 4, Paul is going to shift now. First three chapters, he really including chapter 4 somewhat, he makes the argument again that all are sinners, no matter what your background, status, stage in life. We are all born into sin. We all have a sin nature, and we all by nature sin. And so he's going to now begin to discuss how we are justified before God, how we are made righteous in his sight. And it is not going to be by our own efforts. It is not going to be by our own works. It is not going to be because of some special status we might have. It is not going to be because we've tried our best to be a good person or to obey the, the law of God. It is simply on the, on the basis of God's grace, and we exercise faith in response to his grace towards us. But I wanted to share at the beginning of, of tonight's study just uh, a little research that I came across because it kind of sets the stage for what Paul is going to discuss here tonight. And I want to put this in terms of modern context. Uh, the Barna Group did a, a, a survey a few years ago among people who identified themselves as either born-again or evangelical Christians. So this, this survey was exclusively among those 
who identified themselves as born again, as believers in Jesus, or as evangelical Christians. And here was the question that they posed. Can a good person earn a place in heaven? Now, you would think that if this were a survey just among, you know, your average American who doesn't necessarily know Scripture, uh, they, they might have an answer different from what the church should answer this question. But unfortunately, you're going to see in the responses that uh, a great majority of people, at least this survey was conducted in terms of those who identify themselves as born again or evangelical Christians. And then they broke it down by church size, by people who attended various churches of various sizes. And so it's, it's very concerning, the results. But here are the results. So in a church size of, church, of people who attend a church with less than 100 people, 67% said yes. A good person can earn a place in heaven. And then you'll notice the statistics get better as the church sizes get bigger. And it's not that bigger is always better, but according to this survey at least, I guess the larger churches are, are perhaps doing a better job at teaching and informing people about what Scripture says. Uh, but, but church sizes of 101 to 200, 61% said yes, a good person can earn a place in heaven. Church sizes 201 to 499, 53% said yes. 500 to under 1,000, 52% said yes. So, you know, the majority are still saying yes until finally you get to the church sizes of 1,000 or more people. And, and finally it's under a majority only, only, but it's still a tragic number, 45% of those who identify themselves as born-again evangelical Christians, even in larger churches, say, yeah, a person can earn their way. You can be good enough to earn your way to heaven. Friends, that number should be 0%. That number should be, if people really understand their Bibles, and I hope that you do, and if nothing else, this group tonight will know the right answer to this question. If you should ever get surveyed by the Barna Research Group, please answer the question, can a good person earn his or her way to heaven? No, not at all. You can't earn it. And that's one of the things that Paul's going to address here right off the beginning. So here in chapter 4, uh, we're going to see here how he tells us that salvation is by faith. And in the first eight verses, he's going to tell us it is not earned. It is not earned. And he's going to put it in comparative terms to like when you work at your job and you get paid for your job. When you get paid for your job, you get paid because you deserve it. You've earned it. You've worked hard, and so your employer is supposed to compensate you for it. So he says, but your work is very different from a relationship with the Lord, and it is not based on work, and therefore you don't earn anything. It's all a free gift. So take a look here, verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, now he's going to use two examples here, because, again, this is a scholarly letter written often in, in very strong legal terms because he's building an argument. He's making a case. He's like this incredible defense attorney who is arguing about salvation by faith, not through works. And any good attorney is going to 
bring at least two witnesses to validate something, okay? And even the Bible says, let everything be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's even true in a court of law today. You don't go by what one person says. You have to corroborate evidence by having two or more witnesses. So he's going to mention here Abraham and David. And he's going to use these two guys as witnesses to the point that he's making. And he's going to talk here first about Abraham. He says, was Abraham justified by works? And he's going to dismantle it. He goes, no, Abraham was not, was not justified by works. He was justified by faith because, he says, what does the scripture say? And then he quotes out of Genesis fifteen six, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So, so there was given a credit, if you will, on Abraham's account, but not because he worked for it and not because he earned it, but because he believed He trusted God, he believed God, and therefore it was credited to him. It was not earned. He exercised faith. He trusted and believed in what God said as being true, and therefore then it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, keep reading verse 4. He says, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Right? You worked hard today. Uh, whether you work outside the home or inside the home. And, uh, and, and if you work outside the home where you get a, a, a salary for it, you, you get a salary because you've worked hard for it. He says, so that's the way it happens. It's not credited to you. It's an obligation because you deserve it. You've worked hard. He says in verse 5, however, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked because they've repented, His faith is credited as righteousness. All right, so you get the point that he's making. Again, he's like, God is not obligated to us in any way. It's not like on your job where you work hard and your employer is obligated to you to pay you for your hard work. He He said, salvation is very different. God is not obligated to us in any way. We do not deserve anything from God. It's not like he owes us. And, you know, sadly, some people have that mentality with God, like somehow God owes us. God doesn't owe us anything. We all understand that, right? God owes us zero, nothing. But because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his love for us, because of his forgiveness towards us, he chooses to extend to us his mercy, his grace, his love, but not because we've earned it or deserved it. So he uses this comparison here about working, and then he builds the case further by using David as the corroborating witness. Verse 6, he says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes here from uh, Psalm 32, which David wrote. He said, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. All right, so David doesn't speak about how you worked your way for that forgiveness. You earned that forgiveness. He says, this is all based on God's goodness. And so we're just blessed because he will willingly forgive us when we come to him in repentance. So he uses these two examples. Abraham, he didn't work for anything. He believed God, exercised faith, credited to him as righteousness. David He says here, blessed is the man who's forgiven. It's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. God in his goodness forgives us. So then the second argument that he makes here, number one, it is not earned. Number two, he's going to make the case 
and it is not limited to the Jews. Because again, uh, though he was writing here to the church of Rome, which was a mixture of Jew and Gentile, he wants to make sure that Jews, even though the Jewish people have been and are a special chosen people by God, the purpose of his choosing was to reveal through this race of people the ultimate Savior, who is a Jewish Messiah, that is Jesus. So therefore, the Jewish people are special in that sense, but they're not privileged in the sense of somehow they have a leg up on their way to heaven because of their Jewish status. And Paul's Jewish, and he has to make sure that the Jews understand this. He's like, okay, we, we, are, we are a special people in the sense that God chose us as a race, and he brought about through the seed of Abraham a race of people out of nothing. There were no Jewish people until God just providentially decided through the descendants of Abraham that there should be a race of people that eventually Messiah would come. And he says, okay, special indeed. But don't think we're privileged as if we have a better access to God just by virtue of our Jewish status. And so he begins to dismantle this. He says in verse 9, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, meaning the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, meaning the Gentile? Now, remember, by the way, that circumcision was a covenant that God instituted with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. And although... The whole concept of circumcision, why would God ask a man to be circumcised? How is that covenantal? This might seem a little you know, crude in some sense, uh, but bear in mind, this is the basis behind the covenant of circumcision. That they were to put a knife to the place of reproduction so that they would always remember that their ultimate legacy and their ultimate heritage is in the Lord, not biologically. So that they should remember they are a people belonging to God. They are a people who are descendants of the Lord in the sense that he has chosen them as a special people. So even though today circumcision might be something by choice, it is, it is not to be this exclusive mark and it doesn't make one better or less than. It was exclusively intended originally to be a sign in their body put to the place of reproduction to remember you are a people who are not just to look at yourselves biologically. You are to look at yourselves spiritually and to remember that your ultimate heritage is in and from the Lord your God. And so while the method seems like, you know, that, why would you cut away a piece of flesh like this? But it is, again, it is symbolic. It is a covenantal sign that you bear the mark in your body, that you are a people, obviously passed through the male of the Jewish line, that belong to God. Don't just look at biology. Look at who you are spiritually in the Lord. And by the way, just in terms of a modern correlation, you know, when you come to accept Christ, you have a new identity and a new heritage in him. Okay? And it doesn't matter as much who you are biologically and where you came from biologically. Though if you came from a good heritage, wonderful. Thank the Lord for it. What matters most is who you are in Christ and where you are in Him, not where you were before you came to know Him. Everybody understand that? The spiritual renewal of a life in Christ is, is much more of who you are than just your natural biology of where you've come from and who gave you birth and who your daddy on earth was. Your father in heaven has given you a new identity and your mark by him in Christ is of a greater weight than who you are biologically, your earthly nature. 
right? Everybody understand that? So, you know, thank God if you came from a wonderful home. You know, not every home and most homes aren't all that wonderful because, uh, you know, everybody basically this side of Adam and Eve come from a dysfunctional family, right? But thank the Lord if you came from a decent home, but recognize it's who you are in Christ more than where you've come from. So anyway, he's going to make this case again. It's not just for the circumcised, not just for the Jew. This whole salvation thing is also for the uncircumcised. He says, continuing verse 9, he says, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? He says it was not after, but before. And by the way, in the margin of your Bible, you can just jot down Genesis 14 and Genesis 17. In Genesis, sorry, Genesis 15 and 17. In Genesis 15 is where Abraham, it says, believed God, exercises faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he exercises faith in God and trusts God, and then God imparts righteousness to him because he trusted and believed in, in the Lord. Now that's Genesis 15, all right? Abraham was 85. He's not circumcised until Genesis 17, when he's 99. So Paul's reasoning is that even before the covenant of circumcision, okay, and even before the giving of the law, remember Abraham was 400 years before even the giving of the law through Moses. Okay, so Abraham predates the law. Abraham even believed God before he was circumcised by about 15 years. So Paul's reasoning here is you can't just lay claim as a Jew that, oh, well, because you're a Jew and you have the law and you're circumcised, that you have a step up and an easier entry into heaven. Because he says Abraham believed God, exercised faith. He says faith is the key here. Abraham exercised faith before there was a law. And Abraham exercised faith before he was circumcised. So, so don't think that salvation is limited exclusively to the Jews. He says, in, again, verse 11, he says, And he received the sign of circumcision... A seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, even the Gentiles, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So again, he's just making the argument here, it's about faith, it's about faith, it's about faith. It's not about, it's not about uh, works, that's the earning part, that's point number one. It's not about being Jewish because you were circumcised. He says it's about faith. He says, so whether you're Jewish or Gentile, you can exercise faith just like Abraham did. But don't tie it to any special privilege or don't tie it to your works-oriented relationship with, with, with God. By the way, Again, um, you know, and I've said this on a couple of occasions, at Cornerstone, just, and this is just a rough estimate here, just by virtue of talking to people and finding out people's stories, my guess is as many as a third of our church have Catholic backgrounds. And this was the very book that changed Martin Luther's heart and mind about works. Now, again, the Roman Catholic Church puts a heavy emphasis on a works-oriented religion that you have to do good things in order to get into God's good grace. Martin Luther, when he read the book of Romans, and then subsequently when his heart um, was enlightened about what grace and faith is instead of works and law, that's when he nails his 95 thesis on the castle church door of the church at, at uh, Wittenberg in the year 1517 in the Protestant Reformation 
began. Uh, and, and it was because here he is a monk in the Roman Catholic Church whose entire life was oriented to how do I do good things? How do I become a better person? Uh, how do I strive to achieve you know, this right standing with God? Opens up the book of Romans. And, and then as a result of Romans, he, he said this, quote, he said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. It was troubling to him. He says, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. So Luther was saying, you know, when I would hear this phrase that Paul would use, the righteousness of God, he said, what I, what I thought it meant was that God is so right and we are so wrong that he's just about punishing us because we're bad people, so therefore we've got to do good things to get in his good graces. But he goes on to say, he says, quote, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and, and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven, end quote. And I would just encourage you, you know, some of you who either are struggling with, with that concept of, I think I've got to do better things. I think I have to become a better person before God's going to really like me and save me. You need to be free from that. And it is, there is a wonderful expression when, you know, people who've come out of a Roman Catholic background will come and talk to me. They're like, you know, I finally understand how I can be forgiven through faith. And there's just this wonderful, you know, their faces all lit up. Like finally they understand like, wow, I don't have to strive anymore because the striving doesn't work, does it? I mean, you always end up realizing I'm never good enough. I'm never good enough. I don't know how many of you caught, I, I was on Saturday as I was studying for the weekend services past Saturday, I I had Muhammad Ali's uh, funeral service in the background. And I was struck by something that his widow, his wife, uh, Lani Ali, said in her eulogy of her, of her husband. Now, obviously, Muhammad Ali, early in his life, became a convert to Islam. And so in that, which is a works-oriented religion, okay, all religions except for Christianity is a works-oriented religion in some aspect where you have to strive to try to do this or that in order to get into God's good grace. And I was struck by what Lani Ali said. She said, every morning, Muhammad Ali would wake up, and he would say this to me. I strive always to try to be a good person so that I hope I can get to heaven. And I heard that in the eulogy, and I just thought, you know, how tragic that, that someone's hope of heaven is linked to their ability or inability to be a good person that day. You need to be free from that, and you need to realize what the Bible says, which is that we come to be reconciled to God, not through our good works. And we're made righteous in God's sight, not because we deserve it, or not because we're a good person, or not because we've earned it, but it is all on the basis of faith, where you exercise faith, which is a trust in what God says concerning our condition which is sinful, and the remedy to our condition, which is that Jesus Christ died on the cross, Jesus paid for it all, Jesus did for us what we could not do, that is why he said it is finished, you can't improve upon it, you can't do anything to further it, all you can do is receive it, believe it, accept it, and be saved. Isn't that good news? Amen? And so because of what Christ has done, his finished work means we don't have to work. We cannot work, we cannot strive, we cannot be a good enough person to gain God's good favor. God determined, you will be righteous in my sight, you will be good enough in the sense of being made righteous 
simply because you accept what my son has done on your behalf. And to accept what my son has done on your behalf means that you exercise faith. Not, not the demonstration of works. Now listen, works follow faith, do they not? That's what James says, faith without works is dead. Because once we accept by faith what Christ has done, we want to do good things as a demonstration of the fruitfulness of our faith. But it is not works that leads faith, it is faith that leads works. And works simply is a demonstration of the fruitfulness of our faith. As you've been learning from this study in Romans, every person on earth has sinned and deserves the punishment of eternity separated from God. Jesus changed all of that, though. He came to die in your place, to give you grace, and to offer you the gift of life with Him in heaven forever. Are you ready to accept this gift? We'd love to talk with you more about it, so give us a call at 703-771-1500. That number again is 703-771-1500. We'd like to also direct you to our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Under the Grow tab, click on How to Get to Heaven to hear from Pastor Gary about this important decision. We're so excited for you. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Cornerstone Connection, you'll find them at cornerstoneconnection.cc as well, or download our mobile app to take them with you wherever you go. We'd love to meet you too, so if you live in or are visiting the Leesburg area, come visit us at Cornerstone Chapel. We meet each Sunday and Wednesday to spend time in prayer and worship and studying the Bible, and we're excited to have you join us. You'll find directions on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for tuning in today for Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.